striking the rich and poor alike, not only in Persia, but also in Zion, Lydia, and Media. I remember the day when Ezra and I, our bodies drained of tears, stood before our mother and father, asleep in death. We held hands with Antinoes. Our grief was also his. We stood shoulder to shoulder. The three of us had become one, like some strange animal whose limbs had become inextricably entwined. I remember the scorching summer's day when Antinous led us into his magnificent home and presented us to his father. Father, this is my sister Lila, and this is my brother Ezra. Whatever they eat, I eat. Whatever they dream, I dream. Father, let them come to our house as often as they wish. If you refuse, then I will have no other roof over my head than that of their uncle Mordecai who has taken them in now that they have neither father nor mother. Antinous's father laughed until he could laugh no more. He called the handmaids and told them to bring fruit and cow's milk. When our stomachs were full, we hurled ourselves into the great pools of the house to cool ourselves down. Children are greedy for happiness. Our days were again carefree. My brother Antinous, Ezra would cry, and Antinous would answer, my brother Ezra. Together they forged swords and bows and javelins in Uncle Mordecai's workshop. Oh, Yahweh, why must we stop being children? I remember the day when the game ceased and the laughter trembled at the touch of a caress. Antinous, Ezra, and Lila. Two men and a woman. A new expression in their eyes. An unaccustomed silence. On their lips. The beauty of nights on the roofs of Susa, the beauty of embraces, the pleasure of bodies catching fire like lamp oil too long heated, the three of us becoming one. That was over now. Now it was Lila and Antinous, Lila and Ezra, Antinous and Ezra, lovers and siblings, rage, and jealousy. I remember it well. It churns in my memory like the dark waters of the shower in the rainy season. The handmaids have arisen now. The fires are lit. Soon there will be cries and laughter. It may turn out to be a fine day, alive with hope and promise. As I write... My face is reflected in the silver mirror above the writing desk. Antinua says it is a beautiful face, that my youth is the scent of springtime. Antinua loves me and desires me, is generous with words that speak of his love and his desire. But all I see in the mirror is a furrowed brow and anxious eyes. Is this the face, this sad, preoccupied beauty, that will welcome my beloved when he returns. O oh, Yahweh, hear the plea of Lila, daughter of Sereia and Akazia, I who have no other god than the god of my father. Antinous is not a child of Israel, but he is loyal to his promise. He wants me for himself alone, as a husband must want his bride. Ezra will say to me, Ah, so now you are abandoning me. Yahweh, is it not your will that our body should grow beyond childhood? That we should become men and women, each with our own breath, our own strength, 
the joy of our own senses? Is it not your will that a man's caress should delight a woman? Is it not your law that a sister should find other eyes to love than those of her brother, another voice to hear and admire other than that of her brother? Is it not your teaching that a woman should choose a husband according to her heart, as Sarah did, and Rachel and Zipporah, the wives of Abraham, Jacob, and Moses? Whichever I am faithful to, the other's pain will be just as strong. Why must I cause pain when my brother and my lover have an equal place in my heart? O Yahweh, God of heaven, God of my father, give me the strength to find the words to appease Ezra. Give him the strength to hear them. Part 1 Two Brothers and a Sister The Roofs of Susa in his message, Antinous had not specified the place where they would meet. There was no need. As she approached the summit of the tower, Lila's heart began beating louder and louder. She stopped, closed her eyes, put her hand on her stomach, and tried to regain her breath. It was not because of the dark, narrow staircase. She had found her way again easily enough. She had climbed these brick steps so often that it was no problem to find her footing. No. What made her breathless was the knowledge that Antinous might be up there on the terrace waiting for her. In a moment she would see his face again, hear his voice, rediscover his gentle eyes and soft skin. Had he changed? A little? A lot? She had often heard women complain that when their husbands returned from the wars they were like strangers. Even when their bodies were intact, they themselves had become colder, more aloof. But she had nothing to fear. Antinous's message was eloquent enough. The man who had written those words had not changed in any way. She moved the golden-silver fibula that held her veil to her beautiful tunic and adjusted her belt encrusted with mother-of-pearl. Her bracelets jangled, and the sound echoed like bells against the blind wall of the tower. Light-hearted and smiling, Lila climbed the last flight of stairs. The door to the terrace was open. The setting sun was blinding, and she shaded her eyes with her hand. Nobody here. She turned, looking all around the little terrace. No voice uttered her name. No cry of impatience greeted her. Disappointment pierced her heart. Then she smiled with relief. Beneath the canopy that covered most of the terrace was a low table, heavily laden with goblets of fruit and cakes and pitchers of cold water and beer, and surrounded by thick cushions. A large red ceramic vase held an enormous bunch of pale roses and lilacs from the east. Her favorite flowers. Her disappointment faded away. No, Antinous had not forgotten anything. Wars and battles had not changed him. For their first night of love, he had covered their bed with rose petals from his father's garden. Slowly eating grapes, which were transparent in the twilight, Lila rested her elbows on the parapet surrounding the top of the tower. At this hour, when the night was approaching like a caress, there was nothing more splendid than the view from this terrace. Some hundred cubits above the river shower rose the immense cliff walls of the citadel. 
The royal courtyard, known as the Apadana, was lined with marble columns, carved in Egypt and transported by thousands of men and mules. These columns gleamed like bronze flames in the sun, and themselves were surrounded by marble terraces even more vast than the palace. Giant sculptures of bulls, lions, and winged monsters guarded the Apadana, which was reached by flights of steps so broad and so high they could have held the entire population of the city. Few, though, were entitled to climb them. At the foot of the walls, enclosing the citadel like a casket, were the palaces of the royal city with their many gardens. In a last flash of brilliance, the rays of the setting sun, reflected in the lazy meandering of the shower, came to rest in the gardens, fading amid the dense cedars and eucalyptus trees. The royal city was encircled by a brick wall, pierced with small square windows and flanked by tall crenellated towers, colored red, orange, and blue in places, which separated it from the busy streets of the upper town. These streets, squeezed between flat, whitewashed roofs, ran as straight as if they had been cut with a double-edged sword. They stretched far to the east, the north, and the south, dark, crowded trenches that Lila could barely make out from here. The hum of activity could still be heard. She imagined a mass of people in the streets, the awnings of the booths being lowered. Antinous's garden and house occupied a rectangular strip in the patrician's quarter close to the royal palace. The garden was old and luxuriant, the elegant palms and cypresses lining the main alley leading from the outer wall to the house were as high as the tower itself. A sudden sound made Lila freeze. The shadows were already lengthening in the twilight. She looked at the door leading...